This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. We did almost a whole program yesterday on the Middle East War, and I think it was one of the most important shows I've ever anchored. Uh, We looked at Israel and Hamas from many different perspectives, which required some last-minute booking. And most of those segments are now online. Uh, Hope you had a good weekend, folks. Here it is Monday. We're back at the mic. I wanted to read for you uh, something posted by Donald Trump. And it says this. The attack on Israel would never have happened. Zero chance. If the election of 2020 was not rigged and stolen, S-T-O-L-L-E-N, it shows the world how important elections are. Iran was broke and talking. Now they are rich and watching, waiting to make their move, and it will be a big one. How could crooked Joe Biden, the worst and most incompetent president in the history of the United States, allow this to happen? We went from the Abraham Accords and peace to unprecedented death and destruction. Nevertheless, This big and very dangerous problem is solvable. Make America great again. So here you have the former president of the United States tying the awful situation in the Middle East to what he calls, continues to call, the stolen election. Um... As for his earlier comments, which I've talked about on the podcast, uh, Bibi Netanyahu let us down, I'll never forget, and Hezbollah is very smart. Lindsey Graham asked about this yesterday. Maybe Trump's closest friend in the Senate and almost always defends him, said that was a huge mistake. Uh, On the other hand, toward the end of the week, Trump perhaps realizing how badly this was going over, and, you know, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, um, Mike Pence, and others were really uh, lashing out at Trump for picking this particular moment when the country is under siege and trying to put... Gaza under siege uh, to air personal grievances with Bibi. Uh, So Trump then started saying things like Israel has no better friend and that kind of thing, moving to a positive message without uh, taking back any of his earlier words. Story number one, I want to start with Joe Biden's interview on 60 Minutes. And just the fact that he did the interview, he does so few interviews, shows that he understands, at least in this particular crisis, that people want to see their president leading. So he made some news over the weekend, which is rare. He's uh, given a couple speeches. 
One of them, I thought, among the best speeches Biden has ever given, and Biden is not a great orator, I don't think even he would claim that, about Israel, about what he called bloodthirsty Hamas. But he's trying to be more balanced in his comments here to Scott Pelley, saying, I think it'd be a big mistake Hamas and the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all the Palestinian people. And I think that it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza again. Now, I don't know that Israel plans to occupy Gaza on a long-term basis, but clearly, although we keep hearing, you know, it's any minute now, any second now, this ground invasion or invasion by land, sea, and air is going to begin And maybe it will be today, but it hasn't started yet as I'm speaking to you. Um, So, by warning Israel not to reoccupy Gaza, um, what the president is doing is trying to prevent a wider war, a bloodier war. But he balanced that by saying, going in, but taking out the extremists, The Hezbollah is up north, but Hamas down south is a necessary requirement. And later in the interview, he said, I think Israel understands that a significant portion of Palestinian people do not share the views of Hamas and Hezbollah. That's hard to know from the outside. But what Biden is trying to do is make sure Israel doesn't go too far. And as I talked about on Media Buzz yesterday, I had on uh, Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL. I said, are you worried that world opinion will turn against Israel um, as civilian deaths mount now that Israel had asked basically a million people, half the population of Gaza, to move to the south before it invades the north and New York Times says it's going to capture Gaza City. And I thought he would dodge or deflect the question, but he says, yes, I am worried about public opinion turning against Israel. And then he proceeded to sort of justify what Israel is doing. But with the borders closed, here's a little update for you. Israel has dismissed rumors that it was allowing aid into Gaza from Egypt. Israel has not agreed to give any humanitarian aid to Hamas, said the Prime Minister's office. But it's interesting because uh, Tony Blinken went to the region. He's met not only with Netanyahu, but uh, with the uh, leaders of Egypt and other countries in the region, Jordan. And he announced yesterday, Blinken did, that that northern border controlled by Egypt, would be reopened. One, to let Americans who are trapped in Israel leave. Two, to allow in in some medicine and and supplies, water. Um, You know, it is day by day growing into a huge humanitarian crisis. Hospitals saying they don't have enough resources to operate. Gaza saying no water has reached the Gaza Strip. 
And it was uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, who said that that would happen. So either it's being delayed or Israel, in an effort to further pressure Hamas, is deliberately holding off. And Egypt obviously has a role here too. New York Times describing Israel as a country on edge. Israelis girding with grim determination for what they widely see as a war of no choice. And it is important to remember, Israel was attacked. By the way, the only reason that Israel sort of controls Gaza, even though it pulled out its troops back in uh, 2005, telling the Gazans to run it, they say they have no water, and believe me, I'm worried and sympathetic about the effect on civilian families, but they use some of their water pipes to construct bombs or rockets. Anyway, the only reason Israel essentially controls Gaza is because of the 1967 war. In that 1967 war, Israel, although launching a preemptive strike, was attacked by all the surrounding Arab countries, or most of them, including Egypt, and ended up capturing, and to this day, captured the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So, Palestinians who are unhappy about that, you got to have that historical perspective. Now, this is kind of an eye-opener. All this is happening, says the Times, amid a total breakdown of trust between the citizens and the state of Israel, and a collapse of everything Israelis believed in and relied on. Initial assessments point to an Israeli intelligence failure, yeah, you think? Before the surprise attack, the failure of a sophisticated border barrier, the military's slow initial response, and a government that seems to have busied itself with the wrong things, and now appears largely absent and dysfunctional. So there's a lot of resentment toward the Netanyahu government. An author in Tel Aviv quoted as saying, we thought we had military superiority, but there's a feeling that someone up there forgot why he is there, referring to Bibi. A few months ago, at the height of the anti-government protests over the judicial overhaul, which is basically stripping the Supreme Court of most of its power, thousands of reservists were threatening to quit, and many disillusioned Israelis were discussing leaving the country. Now, the few planes still landed in Israel, still landing in Israel over the past week, have been filled with thousands of reserve soldiers returning for duty. Public fury at the government has been compounded by Netanyahu's refusal, refusal so far to openly accept any responsibility for the October 7th disaster. Not even a Reagan-esque mistakes were made. And what's getting a lot of attention is an interview I did yesterday on Media Buzz with Trey Yinkst, who has done a magnificent job in southern Israel under dangerous conditions reporting on this war. And I played clips at the top of Anderson Cooper, CNN's Nick Robertson, and Trey Yinkst all choking up in the case of Robertson, veteran war correspondent, just you know, holding back tears about the atrocities that they've had to report on, witness, and describe to viewers. 
And I asked Trey about the emotional toll this takes. He said, look, we have a job to do. It's our job to go to the places that other people won't go, tell the stories other people won't tell. And this week, that involved going to Israeli communities along the border and looking at the aftermath of massacres against civilians. It was a terror attack against innocent civilians. We went to, um, he names one community. Uh, People were peaceful there. They were quietly at home on a weekend. And terrorists went into the home. Militants, terrorists went into the homes, these civilians, and slaughtered them at point-blank range. So it's part of our job to go and show people what it was like. And it was truly horrific. Blood-stained floors, bodies lining the sidewalks. It just gives you a sense of what it's like. Personally, we've had to put a lot of our emotions aside. And then he went on to say, when I asked him another question, there have been difficult, difficult moments over the past week. We have seen the worst of humanity on display, Howie. And that's what he told me. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Story number two. As Israel escalates its attacks on Gaza, the State Department is discouraging diplomats who work on Middle East issues from making public statements suggesting the U.S. wants to see less violence. This is according to internal emails viewed by HuffPost. State Department staff wrote that high-level officials do not want press materials to include three specific phrases, de-escalation slash ceasefire, end to violence slash bloodshed, and restoring calm. Now, this happens after there have been two different tweets issued in the name of Tony Blinken and then deleted, I guess, after the secretary objected, essentially saying there should be a ceasefire or calling on Israel to stop, including very early in the conflict. Um, So that's a stunning reversal. Now, obviously, the president of the United States, I mentioned in 60 Minutes remarks, can say whatever he wants about Israel not not going too far. But they actually gave the phrases that they don't want to see put out in the name of the U.S. State Department. Uh, John Kirby was on, and he's been on television virtually every day, and he has gotten emotional at times. Uh, He is, of course, the uh, spokesman for the National Security Council. Asked about Israel's evacuation order, he wouldn't either say he was for it or against it. He called it a tall order. We're going to be careful not to get into armchair quarterbacking the tactics on the ground by the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. What I can tell you is we understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to move civilians out of harm's way and giving them fair warning. But, of course, the complication there is that many of, it's about a half million uh, residents of Gaza who have moved south, um, don't really have any place to go. 
Again, shortages of, most, many don't have cars, shortages of fuel, of water, of food, of medical supplies. And so it's getting worse each day. I, you know, I have to be honest about that. It's a humanitarian disaster, and Israel has to be careful here. Or, as I said to the head of the ADL, world public opinion could shift in a hurry. Number three, we did spend some time yesterday, and I will spend the time today, uh, talking about the speakerless House of Representatives. Now, it's interesting because, I mean, for one thing, this is dead serious. You know, many of you may not give a fig who is the Speaker of the House, but without a Speaker of the House, that chamber is paralyzed, can't vote on aid to Israel, can't vote on aid to Ukraine, can't vote to, uh, to increase funding for border security, can't do much of anything. And so on Friday night, or late Friday, Jim Jordan, who had lost one of these secret ballot votes to Steve Scalise, who later dropped out, uh, described as the hard right chairman of the Judiciary Committee by the New York Times, won the next vote. And the amusing thing is, in the hours before that next vote on Friday, uh, a little-known congressman named Austin Scott, who is actually an ally of Kevin McCarthy, who, as you know, was ousted about 11 days ago now, decided to run against Jordan as a kind of a protest candidate. And he got something like, I don't know, 80 votes. Jordan got 124, a few more than Scalise had gotten. But then they didn't go to the House floor, still paralyzed. Now the reporting is that Jordan is pushing for a vote tomorrow, but nobody ever knows for sure. Because you got to get to 217. So either you get some help from the Democrats, and there are some talks going on about what concessions Hakeem Jeffries and his party would require in order to help out the flailing Republicans. Or you got to get to 217 with votes only from your party, which means you can only lose four votes. That's why McCarthy lost his job as Speaker. That's why Scalise withdrew. And now Jordan is sort of in the Scalise dilemma. It's a lot of talk now about, particularly in the media, about how Jim Jordan was in very close touch with President Trump and top aides before and after January 6th. A lot of people think he was a leader of the effort, even after the violence of the Capitol riot, to prevent the Electoral College certification of Joe Biden as the winner. So, yes, he's a very conservative guy and has a very... Uh, how shall I put it, uh, intense style. But a lot of people, a number of Republicans, either, you know, it's hard, it's hard to always delineate the motivations here. Either they don't like Jordan personally, they don't think he'd be a good speaker, they think he's too conservative to be speaker, or they think that somebody who essentially tried or at least played a role with Trump at reversing the 2020 election outcome and hasn't 
you know, doesn't just come out and say, yeah, Joe Biden is the rightful president, that he should not be the Speaker of the House. So you have some quotes here from other Republican representatives and Wagner, Missouri, calling Jordan's candidacy a non-starter. Don Bacon of Nebraska, who represents, by the way, District 1 by Biden, and that's, you know, the people who are in these more moderate districts are worried about their own seats. Worried about caving in to the whims of hard-right members who would force McCarthy from the speakership. The fact is, said Bacon, if you reward bad behavior, you're going to get more of it. Now here's the kicker, so to speak. Peace and Politico saying a faction of Republicans that strongly opposes Jim Jordan is vowing he'll have a challenger during the speakership vote on Tuesday, according to two House Republicans familiar with the planning. While they haven't nailed down a specific name, you know, you can't beat someone with no one. They believe the person they ultimately land on will not only be able to block Jordan from the speakership, but will also give cover to those who want to vote against him. And that challenger will certainly take arrows from the far right flank of the conference. One of them said, quote, there will be an alternative for the rational part of the Republican conference. So that's not good news for Jim Jordan. He faces the same dilemma that Steve Scalise did, that Kevin McCarthy did. And I, I, I just love, like, they're scrambling to find somebody who's willing to put his or her neck out, knowing full well that that person can't win the speakership. But just to make it easier for those Republicans who are uncomfortable with Jim Jordan to have an alternative. Well, you know, it's not that I don't like Jim Jordan. Great guy, but I voted for Joe Blow. It's like Austin Scott. Like, I mean, will they come up with somebody that has any national profile at all? Uh, Jordan spokesman said, Chairman Jordan, looking forward to uniting the entire conference on Tuesday in order to get back to work and pass the bills the American people expect by giving Israel the resources they need to destroy Hamas and securing the southern border. That's great, but first he's got to win the election for Speaker. 217 is the number. Conservative allies of Jordan believe there are about a dozen hard no votes, but those who oppose him believe they have closer to 20. Jordan needs to win over more than 50 opponents to become Speaker. Uh, And finally, Politico says Jordan allies want to charge into this floor vote, likely or possibly tomorrow, with the hope that public pressure from the conservative base, radio talk show hosts, and their own GOP colleagues will change the holdouts' minds. Not to mention the threat of a primary challenge. Well, that's the ugly part of this. Uh, It's been reported, and I talked to Olivia Beavers of Politico yesterday on Media Buzz, and she was one of those who had a byline on that story saying, you know, they're not just twisting arms by, you know, playing nice and uh, making promises. Some of Jordan's allies are saying on his behalf, hey, if you don't vote for Jim, you're going to get a conservative primary challenge next year. And that is something that many of these members do not want to face. So you have, you know, carrot and stick. You know, uh, I'll give you a good subcommittee chairmanship or something like that. And then, you know, it would be a shame if you got a primary challenge. This thing is so ugly. There are so many factions with so many competing agendas. 
Uh, and we'll see what happens. Maybe tomorrow, maybe not. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four. This is also a piece from Politico, and it really provides some valuable context and background for the situation as far as liberals, maybe far-left liberals, and Israel. Uh, Back last November, Democratic pollster Mark Melman, longtime Democratic uh, strategist, gathered a group of pro-Israel Democrats to pick over the results of the recent Israeli election. The voters have put Netanyahu back in power with a coalition of extremist leaders, including one convicted of supporting a terror group and another who had railed against LGBTQ people and called for ethnic segregation in maternity wards. Um, It was a bleak moment for moderate and liberal supporters of Israel. Melman, who's worked in Israeli politics, didn't sugarcoat the results. He's talking to a political reporter. The advocacy group he leads, Democratic Majority for Israel, had denounced the Israeli far right during the election as unfit to govern. Melman stressed to the collection of allies and donors that they should be wary of an open breach. American disagreements with Israeli leaders, he said, were better handled behind closed doors so they could not be exploited by provocateurs in both countries. Eleven months later, the political situation appears to be both clearer and far more anguished. The barbaric attack on Israel by Hamas last weekend summoned an outpouring of sympathy for Israel from across the American political spectrum. Democratic angst about the Netanyahu government seemed to disappear. And suddenly, the composition of Israel's leadership changed as opposition politician Benny Gantz joined Netanyahu in an emergency uh, unity government. What's not clear is how long this spirit of pulling together might last. Within days or even hours, the impulse to lock arms with Israel could be challenged by the country's promise of unforgiving retaliation against Hamas and consequences of military campaign for Palestinian civilians in Gaza and elsewhere. And one thing I forgot to mention earlier is that Israel went into the West Bank, which is not Hamas, which is ruled by the Palestinian Authority, at least in name, and made a bunch of arrests. So that, maybe it was a one-time thing where the people arrested are sympathetic to or working with Hamas over at Gaza, but that suggests that the West Bank may not be immune to a wider war if that happens. So, Melman telling Politico that, quote, the savagery of Hamas has moved the center of gravity in a pro-Israel direction. This is a redefining moment in the same way that 67 and 73 were redefining moments. It is a core trait of American progressives uh, to identify with communities they perceive as vulnerable and disempowered. Melman suggested the attack could resonate with, uh, particularly among liberal Americans who tend to see the world in terms of victims and oppressors. The reality is people are seeing thousands of Israeli families as victims today, and that's a very different picture than some of these folks had just last week. But that's going to be tested 
says Mark Melman, as Israelis move from being victims to trying to end Hamas's rule in Gaza. And there's obviously no neat way to do it. And there's going to be a lot of casualties on both sides. But Israel, by far, has a superior military machine, backed in part by U.S. aid. So while we might be at a turning point for the way the world views Israel, we might also be at a second turning point uh, if Israel, which many far-left groups, uh, Democrats, Socialists for America, BLM, uh, already see Israel as the oppressor, as the occupier, as not allowing the Palestinians their rights or the right to have their own country. We can debate about whether it's the Palestinians' fault or the Israelis' fault that a two-state solution was never reached. But you have to think that ultimately, after 5,000 years, these two peoples have to find a way to live side by side or will it just be endless cycles of war every five years, every 10 years, every 20 years? You know, it's, it's just depressing. But I think you may see the barometer of public opinion move once this assault on Gaza begins and once we see more results, uh, harmful results, of the displacement of now half a million Gazans. And let's end with number five, looking at the 2024 campaign, which other than the debate about Israel has kind of been submerged by the violent and traumatic events of the last 10 or 11 days. Here's the lead. Not long after the new chairman of the Republican Party in Hawaii was elected in May, he received a voicemail from none other than Donald Trump. It's your all-time favorite president, Trump told him. man's name is Tim Delhouse. I just called to congratulate you. The head of the Kansas GOP received a similar message after he became chairman. The Nebraska chairman had a couple minutes and a photo range with the former president during an Iowa stop. And the chairman of the Nevada Republican Party, Michael McDonald, who had served as a, quote, fake elector for Trump after the 2020 election, was among a group of state party officials who were treated to an hours-long Mar-a-Lago meal back in March that ended with ice cream sundaes. Now, McDonald's party in Nevada has dramatically transformed the state's uh, influential early contest, enacting new rules that distinctively disadvantage Ron DeSantis by effectively blocking the super PAC he relies on. McDonald tilted the rules so significantly that some of Trump's opponents have accused the party of manipulating the election for him. So what's the larger point here? Trump and his political team have spent months working behind the scenes to build alliances and contingency plans with key party officials seeking to twist the primary and delegate rules in their favor. Now, before you say, oh, this is outrageous, and how can he do this? I mean, Hillary Clinton and the DNC essentially did the same thing to try to blunt the challenge by Bernie Sanders. It's politics, folks. And, you know, Trump raised a lot of money, uh, certainly more than DeSantis or any other of his rivals. Biden, by the way, uh, he and the DNC raised $71 million 
in this last quarter, in this last reporting period. It helps to be the incumbent president of the United States. People give because they like you, or people give because they're afraid of what you might do to them or not do for them. Okay, so this is a fail-safe, this changing of the rules in Nevada, in case DeSantis or anyone else scores a surprise victory in an early state. DeSantis, who is not flush with cash, relying heavily on his never-back-down pack, but if Nevada's saying you can't spend any money if you're a super PAC, that clearly is makes life more difficult for the Florida governor. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli, former Trump administration official, who founded Never Back Down, says they've rigged it anywhere they thought they could pull it off. But what's interesting is, unlike 2016, when Trump was the outsider, the insurgent, the businessman, reality show star taking on 16 other Republican candidates. Now, it's almost like he's the Republican establishment. I mean, certainly not in some ways. And the things he says, and I'm not just talking about things he says that are turn him into a lightning rod. I'm talking about parting with conservative orthodoxy on things like we have to find a way to reform Medicare and Social Security as one example. But he now knows, having run for president twice before, he now knows enough about the game to understand that these things matter, calling party chairman and so forth. It's the type of old school party politics that Trump, who cut his teeth in the machine politics of the 70s and 80s in New York, relishes and knows best personal calls and chits, glad-handing, relationships, and reprisals. Advisors say that in contrast to some tasks, getting him to make these calls is a breeze. Yeah, he likes chatting on the phone. Plus, the seemingly arcane issue of delegate accumulation is deeply personal to Trump after he was outflanked in Iowa in 2016 by Ted Cruz, who was better organized. Now Trump is doing to DeSantis what he once accused, though I mentioned this earlier, Hillary Clinton of doing to Bernie, bending the system in his favor. Again, we're talking politics, folks. Now, among those who attended the Mar-a-Lago dinner was Alita Benson, who was then the executive director of the Nevada Republican Party. Now, she's Trump's Nevada state director. And if you think it doesn't matter to have people at the state level, at the precinct level, and working with your campaign, who know the turf, who know the voters, then you don't understand presidential elections because they're state-by-state, county-by-county elections. There's not a national primary. And so it's smart of Donald Trump. He, he's not out there that much. He has a, you know maybe one rally a week or something like that, but he's raised a lot of money. He's cultivated a lot of these local GOP officials. And if, they could, if his allies and aides could just take his phone away so he doesn't do things like attack Bibi Netanyahu in the middle of a war against Israel... Um, well, I can't say he'd be even more out front because he's got, in these national polls, a 50-point lead. In these state polls, often a 30, 35, 40% lead. But it would certainly make life easier for those involved in the Trump campaign. Hey, once again, hope you had a nice weekend. 
Uh, if you didn't catch the show, Media Bug segments, most of them are online, including that interview with Trey Yanks from Israel. And I will see you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.